0: Well, you'll find our text this evening in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter number 11. 2 Samuel, chapter 11, we're on page 365, if you have an old Schofield Bible. And if you'll uh, permit me to, I'd like to just read around in this chapter here for just a moment. And we're going to be talking about another one of these men's lives who stepped into and out of the story of David. If you were with us this morning, we talked a little bit about Abner and how Abner fought David and how he sought David and what he brought David. But I want to talk a little bit tonight about a man by the name of Uriah. And if you'll join me in this text tonight, let me read some verses here. Leave your Bible open and let's look at this man's life by the name of Uriah. Look at 2 Samuel 11 and verse number 1. It came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah but David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an eventide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house and from the roof he saw a wall woman washing herself and the woman was very beautiful to look upon and David sent and inquired after the woman and one said is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam the wife of Uriah the Hittite now jump down to verse number uh, verse 6 and David sent to Joab saying send me Uriah the Hittite And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was coming to him, David demanded of him how Joab did and how the people did and how the war prospered. David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. Boy, it sounds like old David's got a guilty conscience, doesn't it? Verse number nine. But Uriah, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and went not down to his house. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not, uh, camest thou not from thy journey? When this uh, then didst thou not go down unto thine own house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel. And Judah abide in tents. And my lord Joab, the servants of my lord, are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go down to mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. Now jump to verse 14. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire from him that he may be smitten and die. And it came to pass when Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew that the valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Let's pray. Father, bless your word tonight, please. God, give us liberty for just a moment, I pray. Speak to our hearts. God, may the Spirit of God encourage us tonight from the life of Uriah, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen some of our recent services, we have been making our way through the story of the life of Israel's greatest king. I'm speaking, of course, of King David. The story of the life of David occupies some 42 different chapters in the books of Samuel and also in the book of 1 Kings. David is the second most mentioned person in all of the Bible, second only to the Lord Jesus himself. He is without doubt the greatest earthly king that the nation of Israel ever had. And David was also the king that God would use to measure the success or the failure of every king that sat upon the throne after him. The first time that we meet David, he's just a teenager who's out in the fields watching his father's sheep. But before that day is over, as I have said... Before the day is over, David has the anointing oil of a king dripping off his brow. And from that moment on, David's life would never, ever be the same. From the time that David was anointed king, from there on out, there would be some treacherous days in his life. There would be some triumphant days in his life, and there would be some very tragic days in his life as well. But in this series of sermons, more than just preaching about David, I've been more interested in the in the stories of those around David, we've been more interested in the stories of those who step into and out of the life of David. One of the things that I've said often through this series of sermons is the fact that David must have been a very likable individual. He must have had a winsome personality. He must have been a people person because David was always surrounded by people. Even in his worst times, even in the days when he was having to live in caves and and from forest and, and wilderness to wilderness, he had people around him that loved, Loved him and were loyal to him. And as we make our way through his story, we often encounter the stories of the lives of so many other people. Tonight we come to a man that stepped into the story of David and a man who David helped to step out of his story. His name is Uriah. Now the one thing that I've made you aware of as we've gone through this series of sermons is the fact that David's life can be divided into two sections. The first section of David's life was that period of time before the Bathsheba incident. And I've told you during that period of time David could do no wrong. I mean, man, David was, uh, David was on a roll. His uh, approval rating was at 100%. I mean, he was the greatest thing since sliced bread that happened to the nation of Israel before Bathsheba. David could do no wrong. But after Bathsheba, David could do no right. The last part of David's life is filled with great grief and great tragedy. It almost seems like after the Bathsheba incident in David's life, David just became another individual. I mean, you'll struggle hard to find David doing one big thing for God... After the Bathsheba incident. About the best thing that David did after the Bathsheba incident was he started gathering the materials to build the house of God. David, God wouldn't even allow David to build the temple of God, the more permanent structure. But he did allow David to gather the gold and the silver, the money, the wood that would be necessary to build the house of God. Well, in our text tonight, we're not in the before part of Bathsheba. We're not in the after part of Bathsheba. Can I say it like this? we're right in the middle of the Bathsheba incident as we study this man's life by the name of Uriah. What had happened was this. Somewhere along the way, Uriah had met up with a young lady by the name of Bathsheba, and Uriah had fallen in love with the woman... Named Bathsheba. And the Bible said that Bathsheba had evidently fallen in love with uh, Uriah as well. Uriah then would go on to become a very prominent member of David's army. Now, you've got to remember right now that the armies of Israel number, they number right now close to the millions of soldiers in David's army. But let me tell you what a soldier Uriah was. Uriah was such a loyal soldier and a great soldier that David listed Uriah in the top 40 soldiers in his army. We know them as the mighty men of David. And in 2 Samuel 23, we have 39 names of the top 39 soldiers who did great exploits in the armies of David. And this man, Uriah, I'm talking about the man that David is going to go to bed with his wife. This man is one of the top soldiers in David's army. He must have been a very valiant and a very courageous man. In fact, in the text that I've just read tonight, we're told that when his life was taken from him, when he was killed in a battle, that he was fighting in the forefront of the hottest battle. That means, buddy, he was over there where the valiant people were, the courageous people were, and there is where Uriah gave his life Uh, in uh, in service to his king. Uriah was down evidently at the bottom of the wall and the archers were on top of the wall and they were shooting down upon the soldiers of Israel and one of those soldiers shot an arrow that somehow mortally wounded this man by the name of Uriah. A valiant man, a courageous man, a loyal man. What a great man that Uriah was and yet David was participating. He was a participant. Participant in the, in the taking of the life of Uriah. Now what I want to do tonight is let me tell you his story in three scenarios, okay? Let's talk a little bit about this man by the name of Uriah. First of all, let me say this about Uriah as we look at his story. First of all, we find out, number one, that Uriah was a sinner. <laughs> Uriah was sinner. A sinner. Now you say, preacher, big deal. We're all sinners. Well, you're right about that. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. No, not one. But Uriah was. A sinner now I say that on the basis of this fact you 'll find out if you 'll just go through the Bible, count his names. there are twenty six times that Uriah is mentioned in the bible twenty six times you read the name Uriah, but of that twenty six times ten of those times he 's referred to as Uriah the Hittite. ten different occasions the Holy Spirit wrote in the Bible that Uriah was a Hittite. Now you say, preach a big deal. What does that mean? Well, if you think about that, Uriah being a Hittite, your mind automatically defaults now back to the book of Joshua. And in the book of Joshua, we find that the nation of Israel is, is, is about to cross the Red Sea. Uh, uh, the, uh, the, not the Red Sea but the Jordan River, the Yakin River. They're about to go over the Yakin River. And they're about to cross over the Jordan River. And that crazy thing is at flood stage. I mean it's it's flooded out. But as they just sang a moment ago, God made a way through the flooded out waters of the Jordan River and God's people walked over on dry ground. They were They were supposed to, when they got over into the land of Canaan, they were supposed to begin to take possession of the land of Canaan. Now what we called the land of Canaan, we know the Canaanites lived in the land of Canaan. But what we sometimes don't grasp is that the the land of Canaan, the Canaanites were made up of many smaller nations referred to in the Bible as the Canaanites. Those nations, some of them were called Jebusites, some of them were called Perizzites. But one of those nations that made up the Canaanite nation overall was called the Hittites. Now the first time we read about the Hittites in the Bible is back in Genesis chapter number 23 when the wife of Abraham, Sarah, has now died. Abraham is in the land of Canaan and he needs a place to bury the love of his life. He needs a place to bury Sarah. And the Bible said that he goes to a man by the name of Ephron and he buys a piece of property from Ephron, a burial plot to bury his wife Sarah. And the Bible said that Ephron is a Hittite. Now God tell you something about the Hittites. Evidently, they were a very wicked and a very vile type of a people. I say that for this reason. God told Joshua when they got over into the land of Canaan, God's word to Joshua was to totally rid the land, the land of Canaan. Of all the inhabitants in the land of Canaan, in other words, God intended for Joshua to use his sword like a like a a sharp knife to cut away the festering sin of the Canaanitish people. God told Joshua if you get over there with them Canaanites and you settle down with them, it ain't going to be long till those people influence you to start serving their gods, worshipping their false gods. So I'm telling you Joshua those people over there have got, they have got to go. That's the reason God said this right here in Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse number 17. But thou shalt utterly destroy them. Somebody said, preacher, that's kind of hard that God would want his people to rise up and kill another people. You've got to understand according to Genesis 15, God had given these people Generation after generation, God had given them ample time to repent and to turn to him. But these people hardened their heart against God and would not repent or turn to him till finally said, God said they've crossed the deadline. They have must they must die. And God told Joshua to utterly destroy all the people in the land of Canaan. But every time you read through a list of those people that were to be destroyed, and I challenge you. Every time that God went through the list of the people of the the land of Canaan that had to be destroyed, the very first people in that list was the Hittites. I mean, it almost seems like this. Joshua, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, they've all got to go. But Joshua, that low-down Hittite crowd, they're on the list They're on the top of the list. I mean, they're a wicked crowd. They're an ungodly crowd. And that crowd, the Hittite, the very first one that God mentioned had to be utterly destroyed was the Hittites. They're first on every list of the nations that God said they must go. Now, the one thing we know about these people were they were polytheistic. They just didn't worship one God. They worshiped many gods. And the way that these gods were served and worshiped was by a host of immoral practices and rituals. So here is this man, Uriah. He's a Hittite. He's from a condemned nation. He's from a condemned race. He's from a condemned people. He is a descendant of a nation that is under the judgment of Almighty God. And yet in our text, miracle of miracles. Here he is years later. He's married to a Jewish girl. He's serving a Jewish king and evidently he's worshiping the Jewish God. Ladies and gentlemen, we even learn from his name. The name Uriah means this. My God is the light. Evidently somewhere in Uriah's life, the light had gone on that there weren't many gods. There was only one God and Uriah had given his heart to that one true God and he Here he is many years later with a changed life, a condemned man, a man under the judgment of God, but he's a changed man. He's living married to a Jewish girl and serving a Jewish king. What do you call that? I call it the grace of God. Amen. Thank God for the good grace of God. Hey, I know we talk about in the story of David. We're going to get to it eventually. And I know some of you are probably licking your chops saying, I can't wait till we talked about Mephibosheth And what a picture of the grace of God Mephibosheth is. But can I tell you something? Uriah is just as much a picture of the grace of God as old Mephibosheth is. I don't know how it all came to pass. The details of it are are, kind of silent. The scriptures are silent about how how it all came to pass. But somewhere along the way, he met the true, the one only God that there is. And he had evidently given his heart to, to that God, realizing that what he had been doing, what his people had been doing, had, had was wrong and he gave his heart to the one true and living God. By the way, many of us sit here in this place tonight, we too were just like Uriah. We were from a condemned people, a condemned race, a condemned nation. The Bible says that we're all uh, we're abiding under the wrath of Almighty God. We were a people that were under the judgment and condemnation of God. We too, like Uriah, had ignored the one true and living God to pursue our own fleshly lusts and desires. But now we sit in the house of God. Our lives are somewhat kind of straightened out. Somewhat kind of straightened out. Hey, we ain't got to where we're going yet, but thank God there's been some changes made. I know none of us are fully sanctified, not yet, but glory to God, I ain't what I used to be. I've been changed by the grace of God, and friend, I'll tell you, the only way that change has taken place is the fact that the grace of God has changed my life. I've met the living Lord. I've met the King. He's changed my life, and just like you, Uriah, he was a sinner, but now here, here he is in the the nation of Israel, one of the top soldiers. Brother, it was by the grace of God. And can I say this? I am what I am. You are what you are by the grace of God tonight. Uriah, he was a sinner. He was a sinner. Are you with me? How many of you are sinners tonight? Just a sinner saved by the grace of God. Uriah was a sinner. Let me further say this. Not only was Uriah a sinner But now watch this. Uriah was also a dinner. Yeah. You say, what? Who said what? What? He is a dinner. You say, preacher, what do you mean? I mean Uriah was eaten alive. I mean, when you read through the story of Uriah, you can't help but kind of get an an idea that this man was just a lunch for a lot of people. Uriah was a very faithful man. I mean, you can't miss that reading those verses that I've just read to you just a moment ago. But this faithful man was made to look like a foolish man. I mean, this this faithful man, this man that that had tried to be faithful, this man that... Had, uh, had accepted the, the God of Israel as his own God. I mean, man, they ate him alive. A faithful man, but made to look like a foolish man. Can I say this? Watch this. Uriah was faithful to his king, I mean, back in chapter number one, this wasn't Uriah, chapter 11, verse one, this wasn't Uriah's battle. This was the king's battle. This wasn't a war that Uriah was out fighting for Uriah. This was a war that he was out fighting for the king. And watch this while Uriah is out fighting the battle, the war for the king, the king is shacked up with his wife. Boy, doesn't he look like a fool. I mean, he's given his heart. He's risking his life. He's laid his life on the line for the king. And the king thinks so much of him, he's back at home in the bed with his wife. How twisted is that? How perverted is that? And then can I say this? I mean, when David finally decides that Uriah has to be killed, he writes a letter. Basically saying, Joab, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire, retreat from him. In other words, what he's saying is set him up there where he's going to get killed and then draw all the forces away from him and let him be killed. That was what that letter was about. And David knew that Uriah was such a faithful servant that he could trust him with giving him that letter, which in essence was his own death certificate, handed to Uriah, knowing that Uriah would never read it because it was a message from the king to Joab. Uriah was a faithful servant. He would never read the letter, and he entrusted him to deliver to Joab the very letter that would had the instructions on the life murder of Uriah. What a faithful man. Right. But can I say it? He was faithful to his king. Can I say this? He was faithful to his companion. You know when David finally sent up there after word gets back to the palace after that night of all that stuff had happened and word gets back to the palace that Bathsheba is now expecting David's baby though she's married to Uriah. David sends for Uriah. And he says, hey, Uriah, I want you to come home. You deserve, in essence, This is in the Hebrew. You deserve some R&R, Uriah. You've been fighting these battles. You've been up there laboring. You need to come home and just relax a while. And Uriah comes home and David says, here, do this. Go down to your house, wash yourself, and just spend some time with your wife. Now, in David's mind, they're turning. He's he's thinking, how can I cover up the sin? How, How can I? How can, I, how can I get this where nobody will ever understand what's happened here? So he's thinking that if Uriah go home and take a bath, and won't smell bad. He'll spend some time with his wife. And in the natural process of the husband and wife relationship, he'll think this is his baby. You understand what David's thinking? This is his baby that's about to be born, and I've, I've covered my tracks You know the one thing that I gather that David knew about Uriah? that if he sent up there for Uriah and, and, and had him to come back for a little R&R, he knew that David wouldn't be, or Uriah wouldn't be spending time down at the pool hall playing pool with the rest of the boys. He knew he wouldn't hang out over at the volunteer fire department when he ought to be home taking care of his family. Amen and amen. He knew, friend, he knew that Uriah loved Bathsheba and that he would go home and spend some time With his wife, he knew he wasn't one of those to carouse around. He was not one of those who would lay out all night, get drunk with the boys and shoot pool and go down to the nightclub and club around. with He knew one thing. He knew Uriah loved his companion. But she made him look like a fool. The king made him look like a fool. The king ate him alive. His wife, for crying out loud, Ate him alive. But then what about Joab? When Joab opened that letter up from the king and read what was in it, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, Joab knew there was something going on. Can I tell you something? I think I can't prove this, but I personally think that Joab hung on to that letter for the rest of his life. And every time David did something that Joab didn't like, Joab would remind him he had the letter showing that that David ordered the debt. Talk about a cover-up. This is worse than Watergate ever. This is Bathsheba Gate. This is worse than, this bad, this worse than Pisa Gate. No, maybe it ain't worse than Pizzagate. But it's bad. And I think old Joab hung on to that letter for the rest of his life and held that over David's head. And every time old David started to do something, Joab didn't like it. He'd pull that letter out. He'd remind David, I can, I can, I can, I can ruin you at any time. I wonder who's sitting here in this service tonight. Somebody's holding a letter over you. You messed up. You did something wrong. And every time the telephone rings, you wonder if somebody's pulling that letter out. I mean, you wouldn't serve God, but you know somebody's got a letter on you. Hey, you would try to live for God, but somebody's holding a letter on you. Hey, you would surrender your life to God, but somebody, hey, I'll tell you what, you ought to get that letter, get on, at the altar tonight, under the blood of Jesus, tear it to shreds, and let God take care of it tonight. Now, what was we talking about? Joab boy Joab treated him like a fool Joab got that letter and read it You rise, one of the best soldiers he's got Joab could have said he didn't have any trouble defying any other of David, uh, David's orders as you read through the story and I'm going to preach about Joab before this is over with but I tell you what listen to this Joab could have said I'm not wasting one of my good men up there underneath the walls where, the, where they're shooting down from the walls and make him an easy prey but Joab went through with it Joab even made him look like a fool. I said all that to say this. Here's a faithful man. Here's a man that's doing his best just to try to be a blessing, trying to serve God, serve his king, serve his nation, serve his general, love his wife, love his family. He's just your average, ordinary Joe just trying to do what's right. And he's made to look like a fool. They ate him for dinner. You know how many times has the devil told you and me that when you live for God, you're a fool? You know, I think about this most of the time in the news or on TV. When there's a Christian or a preacher uh, or whatever... Can I even use this loosely? You know what I'm saying? A priest or something that's portrayed on a TV show—they're always made to look like a hypocrite, like a bumbling idiot, like a, an ignoramus. They're always made to look like—I mean, they're just man—they just they lack intelligence. You know, they're, they're, they're this. And one thing at this time, they're living a double life. They're, uh, they're, a, 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 they're a preacher by day and they're a prostitute by night. Uh, you, know, you get all that stuff on TV. That's what the world wants us to believe, that living for God just don't pay. That if you're faithful, you're a fool. And from the story of, jo- of Uriah, you almost have to say, man, It almost seems like that's the way it is. It seems like God's people are always drawing the short straw. But as I close tonight, I not only want to talk about Uriah was a sinner and Uriah was a dinner, but can I close with this Uriah was a winner. That's right. You say, Preacher, what are you talking about? I mean, here are all these people that made him they've made him look like such a loser. They made him look like such a fool, such an ignoramus. They played him like a fiddle. They've ate, his, ate him for lunch. I mean, they've made him look terrible. How can you say that he was a winner? Well, I said this a moment ago, but the devil tries to convince us that living for God don't pay. The devil tries to convince us nice guys finish last. The devil has always tried to convince us that serving God will get you nowhere. And as we look at this story, we almost have to agree with him until we stop and look at it like this. Uriah never had to go through the heartache. Uriah never had to go through the turmoil. Uriah never had to go through the tribulation. Uriah never had to go through the tears that the rest of these people had to go through the rest of their life he was a winner can I tell you something living for God you're a winner I know the world may play us like a fiddle I know they may make us look bad look foolish they may look, make us think, may think of us as lacking intelligence being ignoramus all we are is a bunch of Bible thumping uh, gun carrying redneck flag-waving Americans. By the way, hey man. Woo, packing a little heat myself tonight. I got my Bible, got a flag in the car, my neck's red, been out in the sun. Hey, thank God for the Bible. Thank God for the flag. Hey, thank God for guns. Thank God for rednecks. I'm gonna tell you something, this crowd, this crowd better be careful. They're stomping up down the streets and burning places and killing people. But let me just say this: they better stay out of the country. They better stay away from the rednecks. Hey, we passion, friend. Hey, amen. Hey, hey man. Not amen. Hey, man. I'm redneck. I'm rednecking it right now. Hey, man. Help me, Jacob. Hey, man. They better stay out of the country. I'm not. That's not a threat. But I'm just saying they better stay where they can find some protection out with them bunch of stinking low-down Democrats. They better stay where somebody will let them do what they want to do because if they come in the country, they ain't no longer in the Democratic cities. They're in the country. They're in the redneck territory. The flag-waving, Bible-believing, gun-carrying rednecks. Amen. How many of y'all agree with that? This ain't no political rally. It's a preaching service. That's what old Uriah was. He waved that flag with that six-sided star of David. He was packing some heat. He believed the Bible, what little bit he had of it. He'd been out in the sun and his neck was red. But let me tell you something about him. He wasn't no loser. He was a winner. Can I tell you something? Look at it like this. Just take David, for for instance. David suffered for this one sin the rest of his life. I mean, you stop and think about it. I mean, mean, just think about David's life from here on out. Uh, Right after Uriah died, Uriah died, that little baby, he's got to go to Hayworth Miller in downtown Jerusalem, the Hayworth Miller Chapel. And he's got to pick out a little casket for a baby because his little baby has now died and David is he's weeping. You know why? David's the loser, not Uriah. He's got to pick out that casket for that little baby. He's got to stand in that receiving line, that family line, as people come through and shake his hand and say, King, we're praying for you. You're such a good man. We don't know why in the world God allowed something like this to happen, but on the inside, David knew why it happened. It not long just a little bit later till his daughter comes home and she's tore all to pieces. Her name is Tamar. She's weeping. She's a virgin. She's a virtuous girl. And her own half-brother, Amnon, one of David's other boy, has raped his own sister, and for the rest of her life, she'll remain a a, a desolate widow, so to speak, in the home of David. And, and people probably said, David, we don't understand your baby's died. And your own daughter's been raped. And, and she's been emotionally, she's been emotionally hurt and for the rest of her life, she'll never marry, she'll never have kids. We don't understand why this is happening to you, but David knew. When it wasn't long until Amnon was killed by Absalom, one of David's boys rose up and killed his own brother, it didn't long till he's back down at Hayworth Miller picking out a bigger casket to bury another one of his sons in. And here comes the people through the line again. David, we don't understand. Your daughter's been hurt. She's emotionally scarred. Your, your baby died. Your boy's dead. We don't understand. You're such a good man. We don't get it. But David knew. It didn't long till Absalom rebels against him. Absalom runs his own daddy, tries to kill his own daddy. And it didn't long till Absalom's caught up in, a, in, a, in the thick of boughs of an oak tree. And he's standing there and Joab comes by with three darts and, and kills Absalom. David's back down at the funeral home picking out another casket. Israel's saying, David, we don't understand. But David knew. I'll tell you who the loser is. The man that don't live for God. The man who who turns his back on the commandments of the word of God and tries to fulfill and satisfy his own fleshly desires and doesn't give God a second thought. They are the losers. Think of it like this and I'm done. We got to go. Think of it like this. Uriah was none the wiser. I don't even think Uriah ever found out what David did with his wife. I don't. David never knew about the the adultery. David never knew about the baby that was conceived. uh, Uriah never knew about the cover-up that took place. All Uriah knew was the day that he left the house, he kissed his wife, he was happy as a lark. He was going to fight a battle for the king. He was as happy as he could be. And he got killed and died with a man with joy in his heart. I'm going to tell you something, friend. You're not a loser if you live for God. You're a winner. Hey, listen, we may be a bumbling idiot in the sight of this world, but we ain't got where we're going yet, friend. And when we get over there, we'll be glad, so glad that we lived for God. Uriah was a winner. And I just want to close my message not by telling you this. You live for God. You're not a loser. You're a winner. And anybody who don't live for God is a loser. Can I have an amen? Amen. Amen. I amen on own preaching, especially that redneck part. Don't you wish you could be a redneck? How many rednecks are in here tonight? Okay. Then I sit amongst my own people tonight. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, I pray that you'd help us to understand.